Hello and welcome to the MIT Press podcast. My name is Sam Kelly and in this episode I'll be interviewing Eric Davis. Eric is the author of High Weirdness, a co-publication by MIT Press and Strange Tractor Press. In High Weirdness, Eric explores drugs, consciousness, politics and psychedelic spirituality in the 1970s by three figures, Philip K. Dick, Terence McKenna and Robert Anton Wilson. Before we get to that conversation though, I'd like to add that we'll be putting out a podcast every Friday from here on out and with that in mind, it would be great if you could reach out with what you like, how we might make the podcast better and of course suggestions as to which authors you'd like to hear from. You can reach out to the press via the usual social media channels as well as contacting the press via info at mitpress.org.uk. Thanks as ever to Kristen Galeno for the soundtrack and now conversation with Eric Davis. You're an author, podcaster, award-winning journalist and popular speaker based in California. Uh, you're the author of five books, most notably Tegnosis and more recently High Weirdness, which was a, a co-publication between the MIT Press and Strange Tractor Press in June of 2019. And you're also working on another book at the moment for the MIT Press, if I'm correct. That's correct. So today I wanted to ask you a few things. I did want to bring your work into a dialogue with what's happening with COVID-19 and not just for the sake of it, but because I think uh, in your research, there's some valuable problematics that seem interesting in relationship to what's happening. Great. But to start, could you give a brief outline of what your research is concerned with, what your interests are for listeners that aren't familiar Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've been I've been interested in the you could call the kind of fringes of consciousness and religion and uh, contemporary culture, techno culture, subculture uh, for, you know, 30 odd years as a journalist and as an author and as scholar, um, having got my Ph.D. not not too long ago in religious studies. And it was the work I did there for my Ph.D., uh, that turned into high weirdness, um, which I was really happy to get on on MIT uh, along with uh, Strange Attractor. So it was a nice combination of a formidable uh, scholarly uh, uh, publisher and the kind of uh, more uh, colorful fringe that I'm also used to spending a lot of my time in. And yeah. uh, for that book, I was really focusing on trying to understand psychedelic experience, particularly in the decade of the 1970s. You know, usually a lot of stuff about the counterculture really focuses on the 60s, or people will say, oh, the 60s really aren't over till 1975. But I believe that something really different happened in the 1970s, and that actually a lot of our contemporary culture, we can trace back to things that happened in the 70s with technology, with the economy, uh, with uh, t- uh, turning to a uh, you know really installing a kind of multicultural society, uh, developing lifestyle, consumer credit, uh, internet, uh, early internet technologies, early kind of networking technologies. A lot of our a lot of our world is more about the '70s and the '60s. So I've always been interested in it, and I thought, well, let's track psychedelics in that in that era, and not just psychedelics, but really the the larger problem of what do we do with the fringes and the intensities of human experience kind of after religion or when 
religion is no longer the sole place that we understand things like mystical experience or visionary experience or the paranormal or, um, uh, you know, the Dionysian. And one of the things that the counterculture did was kind of at once intensify and break apart uh, the religious organization of extraordinary experiences, whether they were delightful or terrifying or mystical. Uh, they sort of lost their home uh, and be became part of this broader, more diffuse, more multiplicitous kind of uh, culture that I, is the way that I see the, the 1970s. Um, and so I, I kind of focused my, my research by looking at three uh, men who had very extreme experiences in the 70s and wrote very weird books uh, about these experiences. And these are uh, Terrence McKenna, that, who became a, uh, a very well-known sort of psychedelic bard uh, culture leader uh, in the 1980s and 1990s. He died in uh, 2000, um, 20 years ago, just to right around now. And uh, uh, he had an extraordinary experience in, in the jungle in Colombia with his brother and some other friends. And this kind of inspired his whole strange career as a, a fringe intellectual and uh, a, a psychedelic um, raconteur. Uh, the second figure is uh, Robert Anton Wilson. Um, who uh, also was very psychedelicized in the 1970s, living in Berkeley. Um, and he wrote a very uh, well-known, if still somewhat arcane <laughs> or esoteric fiction called The Illuminatus Trilogy in the 1970s. And this book really kind of launched a thousand weirdos, occultists, uh, conspiracy theorists, uh, you know, chaos magicians, um, uh, psychedelic thinkers, and he himself was was an, uh, like Terence, a, a, a countercultural intellectual. Most of his books were nonfiction. Um, they combine, you know, great erudition and a real polymath kind of uh, extent of, of of influences, with also a kind of garage rock philosophizing and and. Uh, a kind of uh, interest in conspiracies, alternative visions. Uh, and he also had some extraordinary experiences uh, that, that led him to the edge of, of, you know, paranoia and what we might identify as psychosis, which he wrote about in a particular book called The, the Cosmic Trigger, which came out in the late 1970s. So he, once again, an example of someone who had extraordinary experiences, but also wrote about them in ways that are very interesting and that we can that are a little more concrete because we can at least uh, point to the page. And the third person uh, is, is not so much a psychedelic person, but uh, the best known of these three probably is the science fiction writer Philip K. Dick, who had a you know famous series of extraordinary experiences: paranormal, psychotic, religious, mystical, all <laughs> rolled into one. Uh, in 1974, really beginning in 1974. And this really influenced all the rest of his work in the, the remaining decade or so of his life. Um, and I've been working and thinking about uh, Dick's work for a very long time. And that was really the core, the original core of the, of the PhD was just going to be focused on, on Dick and his, how he thought his way through, how he wrote his way through 
trying to integrate these experiences that have a religious quality, but are also more than that or less than that, you know, both more psychotic, but also more science fictional or visionary or postmodern or technological. And all three of these thinkers have these themes, this element of like, not quite religion, there's some occultism, but there's also science fiction. There's also sociology and psychology. There's also uh, the weird. And I think the final thing to sort of say is that as I was trying to talk about, well, what is this space that these guys have, were, were diving into and that in, in many ways were prophesying for a whole zone of the culture, and one that continues to be influential today as all three of these people are more well-known today than they were in the 70s, um, particularly Dick and McKenna. Uh, so I had to come up with sort of what is this thing in this post-religious space? What do I call it? What is it? And this is the, the weird. Uh, and so I take the idea of the weird, which is sort of a marginal concept. It's something that we all, we use the term a lot, but we don't really think of it as having that much substance. It's also kind of it's also a kind of fiction, you know, H.P. Lovecraft is a weird fiction writer, or, or Clark Ashton Smith is a, is a, uh, an Amer- uh, a California example. Um, uh, it's also a sort of way of talking about strange experiences that doesn't really emphasize their supernatural quality. You know, you might have an extraordinary experience, let's say you, you dreamt last night about, you know, running into a friend you hadn't seen since uh, high school in a particular bar as you were, you know, drinking a, a Coors, and there you are the next day, those exact same sequence of things happen, and some people might go, that's mystical, it shows that the cosmos is is working in, in another order of time, And but for a lot of us, we're like, no, we can't say that, but we can say, yeah, it was really really weird. And then we also use it in, you know, even physicists use it a lot. They talk about quantum weirdness as a way to indicate that there are things in physics, in physical reality, and what science recognizes that are so counterintuitive, that are so strange and difficult to wrap our heads around in terms of our ordinary models of causality, that calling them weird is just, just makes sense. So my basic argument is that reality is kind of weird, that experience can be very weird, um, especially when you kind of, again, leave the familiar, more familiar languages of religion on the one hand or psychotic psychology on the other and just kind of attend to the experiences at hand. And culture's weird and particularly got weird uh, uh, with the influence of the counterculture and psychedelics uh, in, you know, on thinking and writing and movies and everything. And that in many ways, we kind of live in this sort of weird stew uh, today. And that even though I was really focusing on the 70s, I really wanted to pay attention to that decade, which I think doesn't get enough attention because it's so important. And it's so it's such a uh, precursor to our contemporary conditions mm-hmm. in many ways. Um, yeah. But so I focused on the 70s, but I was really in many ways talking about now. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you actually about the kind of politics of these three figures because you talk a lot about how they're not traditional men of the left. I think you said recently uh, they're all quite anarchic or libertarian. That was kind of what I wanted to bring into some of the questions about this current strange environment we're all living in because I, I would be curious as to how their politics maps onto what's happening now 
with their kind of suspicion of surveillance, state control, the system, as it were, whilst equally, I'm not sure how those arguments kind of match up to the challenges posed by something like a pandemic, which equally seems like a kind of weird thing that might happen in some of the writing of these these guys. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about their politics, how they differ politically, and if you could possibly maybe map it onto some of the landscapes that are kind of currently unfurling. Yeah, I'll give it give it a shot. I mean, it's you know only only Wilson was really a political thinker in the sense that he really he understood history and politics very well. He had spent time as a Marxist, um, but kind of found himself in a sort of anarchism that was associated in in many ways with what you could call then a sort of space of libertarianism. Libertarianism is a hard word to use, particularly in Europe. Or, or, in, or in the UK where there aren't that many people who, who use that term because people tend to see it as just a certain kind of like uh, right-wing market, uh, pro-market, you know, like Silicon Valley, you know, selfish individualist laissez-faire politics, which is fair in the sense that that does cover a lot of what American libertarianism is, but Within American libertarianism, there there have been movements and trends in multiple directions. And so in a lot of ways, it's more fair to call these guys anarchists, though in the case of Wilson, um, he was willing to wrestle with the libertarian world and to kind of deal with it. So meaning that their, their, their concern is not with the freedom of markets, it's with freedom. And how we think about freedom in the modern world, how do we think about it spiritually? There's a kind of spiritual libertarianism or spiritual anarchism that's a very important part of the counterculture. That's one of the things that I'm trying to to draw out. Um, so it's just important to complicate that a little bit and not say, oh, they're just apologists for, you know, you know, uh, right wing, no state market forward kinds of things. Wilson, though he called himself a libertarian often or a, or a right anarchist, uh, or an individualist anarchist, as opposed to a social anarchist or, or left-wing anarchist. He, he had no respect for people who were obsessed with Hayek. He hated Ayn Rand and the objectivists. So, you know, it's a, it's a complicated stew of weird little subcultures, particularly in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Um, it's, it's less so, I think considerably less so these days. Um, Mm. McKenna is more, again, he's more of a, of a, you know, a a free thinker, let's call it an anarchist in a, in a kind of more cultural sense in which he's, you know, extremely critical of, of the state and of, of, you know, mainstream society of, uh, the, the, you know, the limits of, uh, you know, American government. Um, and, you know, he's not a particularly political thinker. He's interested in, in freedom of the imagination and, and, you know, he has, he has very, countercultural values in a lot of ways in terms of the the kind of world he would like to see uh see happen um but he i think identified a little bit more with uh with the anarchists than with the left and and particularly in the 60s and, and 70s when you know everyone was kind of taking these politically radical positions he rejected both the kind of hippie fantasy of sort of returning to nature and some kind of bucolic kind of reintegration of he was very interested in technology and technological development he was very influenced by Marshall McLuhan so he had a very forward 
thinking view of technology as a as a generative and and to some degree liberating force as did as did Wilson um at the same time he was uh he was critical of of uh collectivism so i i think both of these men were 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 critical of collectivism so you know you get into those kinds of uh, kinds of elements and that's one thing that we're we're in a really interesting point now when the uh you know when we 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 suddenly have a very visceral and very uh uh urgent reason to reframe our ideas about collective action and about the states or state-like bodies that uh manage collective action in the face of a kind of crisis and you know we're we're very this is a very interesting political um situation with 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 COVID-19 in terms of the way that it radically reframes state actors and we also get to see how people and populations and even um you know uh, uh conservative populations or libertarian populations respond to the obvious necessity of state intervention and action at the level of you know large institutions governments international bodies etc cetera, etc cetera. so you know obviously we're in a very interesting phase right now of thinking about um I don't mean collective action in the in the sense in the full sense of a, a, a of a liberating left wing collectivism. I just mean in terms of just the state as being a very positive factor in a way that is uh, can be um, you know uh, cart- rendered a kind of a cartoon by a, a lot of libertarian forces, let's say in the, in the United States, and we're seeing some of it here too in terms of how different uh, states are adopting. Uh, shelter at home policies, and there's this very very clear resistance and and paranoia on the side of the individualist right about state control and you know managing behavior. And at the same time, it's been very interesting to see how willing most people have been to to uh, to shelter and and to sort of adopt a, a self restrained behavior in light of a social demand and a real social need. So it's a real interesting time, a very productive time, I think, and, and possibly in the long run, a, a really positive one in some ways in terms of people's ability to think collectively or to think in terms of the whole, you know, humankind and, and how, how best to behave in relationship to it. Uh, to get back to our figures, though, Phil Dick, he's a, he's a, a, again, a little bit off from these other characters. You know, he, he he's, was both kind of a conservative and, and kind of a radical his own politics were were a little bit confused. He had a, a great deal of sympathy for the the little guy and the working class, and and definitely grew up in a um, in a kind of Berkeley based Bohemian uh, sort of uh, a political framework. Um, but also, you know, came later in his life to to have some views that we would see as conservative. He was very opposed to abortion, for example. Partly because he, uh, how he interpreted, it, and he, you know, he was a Christian and considered himself a Christian, uh, albeit he was a pretty weird one. Uh, and uh, but you know, at, at the same time, like uh, like McKenna and and uh, Wilson, and I think this is the really interesting point that's perhaps the most relevant is that they were all futurists. 
not just in the sense that they were all influenced by science fiction or wrote science fiction, but they really kind of felt it coming on, meaning that they sensed the way that the technological forces, the media forces, the information forces, the data forces that had been unleashed in the post-war environment were just going to keep accelerating. And they saw that acceleration and they sort of had these prophetic, sublime, sarcastic, uh, cartoonish, uh, insightful visions of what this was going to be like. And I think they all tried to extract something positive out of it, a sense of freedom and possibility. Um, Wilson in particular was very sort of interested in how we were going to be able to sort of ride this tremendous wave of change that we're seeing all around us now, albeit, you know, not you know, uh, anticipating a lot of the details. And and Phil Dick, in a more religious way, I think, had a sense of that collectivity. You know, he's the, the, the na- one of the names for the kind of entity he encountered in his extraordinary experiences in 1974 was Valus, the vast, active, living intelligence system. But that sense of like a, a complex living system, a sort of Gaian mind, a world mind, a, 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 a logosphere uh, was really important to all three of the guys and they all came up with that. And that was one of the things that interested me about them is that their technological visions were quite resonant uh, in spooky ways. And a lot of them featured a kind of flip-flop. You know, you asked uh, in terms of our contemporary situation, if on the one hand right now we're we're experiencing viscerally the positive function of the state and, you know, at least in, from my perspective, journalism's capacity to still try to wrestle with the fog of war and come up with things that maybe we can hold on to. I'm leaving Fox News uh, off to the side here. That's another conversation. Um, and and also, uh, you know, the sense of, uh, you know, of public health, which is a very, you know, collective um Base concept, and suddenly our 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 technology, which had, or, you know, our media technology, the internet, all our communications technology, which is which has grown increasingly dystopian and s- simply irritating over the last decade, after a decade and a half of 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 either absurd utopianism or at least tremendous excitement about the possibilities, but somehow in our post social media zone. As the uh, as all our devices transform very visibly into surveillance devices, and the nature of the internet becomes more clogged and bloated and security ridden and te- you know and and open for exploits, and that we suffer these exploits more and more, like the, the whatever utopian you know uh, hopes and fe- uh, hopes and and sort of uh, fantasies were invested in the new technologies were toast. But now we're having this experience, not necessarily of some fantasized utopia of, of, of liberation or f- human flourishing, but just the very real and, again, visceral sense of how these things have come to serve as the medium for our continuing social lives at a time we really need it. So we're all like, we've all collapsed the distance, you know, Skype and Zoom and and FaceTime are not, they don't, we don't, they're a little buggy. Who cares? We're being surveyed. Who cares? I want to talk to mom. I want to talk to my friends. I'm going to do this. I'm going to use this. So on the one hand, we're kind of interpolated into these larger systems, 
But, you know, the, the dark side, the surveillance, the paranoia, all of that is still stitched into the story, just the way it was in the 1970s. All three of these guys wrestled sometimes heavily with paranoia in a very paranoid decade. You know, I'm rereading Gravity's Rainbow right now, and it's just all there. You know, I mean, yeah, Gravity's Rainbow is set in the 40s, but it's all about the 70s. It's all about technology and engineering and paranoia. And we're still kind of in that story. Uh, so this tension between visions of larger systems, which have a kind of liberating quality, are also bound up with this kind of dystopian, arconic, uh, paranoid uh, side of things. And it's a, it's, a, it's a vexed dialectic that I'm afraid we continue we're just going to continue to ride. Yeah. Can I pull you back a little bit as well and ask you to explain the relationship between, you know, speaking of Fox News, conspiracy theories, um, and also maybe could you explain things like consensus reality and how that's fracturing in relationship to the way technology increasingly since the 70s has mediated communications and information could you maybe unpack that? Sure, sure. Dialectic a little bit. Yeah, me? yeah. I mean, there's a so there's a couple things here. Let me try to lay it out. Well, on the one hand, just to, just to talk about conspiracy theory. So the whole like idea of cons- I mean, conspiracies go back forever, and in the modern world, they were very important. You know, explanations of the of the French Revolution or the the protocols of the Elders of Zion, the sort of idea of a Jewish world conspiracy. Those ideas go back for for centuries. In a modern sense, though. Conspiracy theory as a term is born in the wake of the JFK assassination. It's not used before. And in fact, in many ways, it's a loaded term. Conspiracy theory was used very consciously by both media forces and the government as a way to uh, separate the official version of the story where Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone and all of the completely legitimate or some of them completely legitimate questions about this story based on alternative models of what happened. So there needed to be a way to separate that so you could keep the, 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 the mainstream story clean. So everything else became a conspiracy theory. So, all right. So then from that point on, you have this whole rich history of conspiracy theory, which exploded in the last 10 years, you know, on the, on the internet, you know, that when I was in the eighties and nineties being interested in this stuff, it was still kind of arcane. It was like studying magic or, 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 or being into like weird pornography or something. It's just, it wasn't part of the mainstream conversation. I mean, you know, it appeared in the X-Files or whatever, like it was around, but it was, it was not part of the main, the main line. And, and Wilson's work in particular is really important here because Illuminatus, which, which came out in 1975 is sort of a, a kind of celebratory, a, a, a sort of, uh, you know, mordant celebration of conspiracy thinking and paranoia. Basically it's a great story. It's worth, worth telling a little bit about this. Where did they get this he he wrote the book with a, a fellow uh, editor at Playboy magazine, and they both worked at Playboy in the in the late '60s, and they were letter editors, not the Playboy. I always forget which one they were. The Forum, and there's the not the one with the the, the horny letters, but the one that was about politics. So they got they got a lot of letters from people, and they got some real kooks. They got John Birch Society people. Oh, the government's opening our mail. You know, they got 
conspiracy theories. So they started to just collect the stuff and they started to go, hey, why don't we why don't we just make a novel, a big, baggy, messy, postmodern novel, they didn't use that term then, of course, uh, in which all of these conspiracies are true. And that's the basic, you know, uh, framework of Illuminatus. And the main conspiratorial force is the Illuminati. Now, now we know the Illuminati if we're pop culture fans, because, you know, some people believe that the Illuminati is putting, uh, hiding messages and, you know, R&B videos and Madonna or whatever, or that there's sort of a secret order of Hollywood elites that you get sort of illumined by, and then you enter into this thing and you can find signals of it or, you know, whatever. It's part of the of the contemporary conspiracy language uh, uh, landscape, which again has just exploded uh, over the last decade. And I will get to the way that technology played a role in that, in that explosion. For, for Wilson, it's just kind of the big funny bo- bogeyman. And it's a very interesting bogeyman in the book because it's sort of evil, but it's also sort of like inventive and creative. It's a, it's a, it's a very ambiguous portrayal of this idea of a kind of hidden force that's, that's manipulating and controlling society through technology, through drugs, through culture. And of course, there are anarchist groups that are warring against the Illuminati, but maybe they're actually all working for, together for some higher force. I mean, it gets very cosmic, psychedelic, silly and satirical, but also, again, strangely prophetic. And what it's particularly prophetic of is what happens when consensus reality, which is a term that really emerges in force in the 1960s as a way of kind of saying, look, reality is kind of partly a construct. We get you know, we, we grow up, we learn a language, we are encultured in certain ways, we are educated in certain ways, we think in certain ways, we have certain frames of reference, those are shared throughout culture, and those provide some of the stability of this shared world that we experience. Yes, we all share the physical world of raindrops and, and you know, uh, earthquakes, uh, but we also share this sort of cultural world that feels just as real, but is clearly more of a historical construct. So let's just call that consensus reality. Uh, you know, the the world where reality, the, you know, the reality where Einstein, you know, figured out something about how the cosmos worked and where uh, the the individual has certain rights, you know, which is totally a construct. And yet it's part of our reality, actually. It's not just an idea in our in our experience. So what happens when consensus reality, for whatever reason, begins to break down? And that kind of, uh, you could call it postmodern moment, is something that happens in Illuminatus because all these different conspiracies are true and you never know who's telling the truth and you're reading the book and there's true, there's real history in the book and then it's married to uh, fiction. So it's got that mix, that impish but now rather disturbing blend of uh, realism and fiction, which at the time was kind of like a great lark. And if we read it today, we go, oh boy, here it comes. Oh God, this isn't going to be very fun. Um, And one reason for that is that, well, just on a level of media, not on some big ontological metaphysical level, just on the level of media, consensus reality has broken down. It's very, very evident in the United States. Um, And that partly happened or in some ways, largely happened because the fundamental infrastructure of media uh, distribution transformed so radically. 
like the in retrospect we can look back at the mainstream media of the 1960s the 1970s you know the things that that in many ways the counterculture was rebelling against and you can go yeah it had its problems but at least it managed to provide a glue like everybody paid attention to Walter Cronkite even if Walter Cronkite was also kind of well you know kind of a Illuminati kind of guy but <laughs> but it didn't matter do you, do you think as well there's there's partly that shift that took place in the late 60s between as you say a kind of glue into a uh, the the kind of combative nature of media as a default things like the like the the Govidal, William F Buckley debates as a kind of shift towards media that accommodates opposed opinions and it's almost the combat becomes a spectacle between them yeah i, I think that's part of it for sure i mean it was partly because the 60s was so polarizing but I think more importantly is one of the shifts that I talk about that I think is really important about the 70s, which is the 70s is where, at least in America, but I think this is true in the UK too, where multiculturalism becomes sort of like the obvious solution partly, you know, like not full, full on multiculturalism, but like recognizing that there are multiple identities that have, that live in multiple worlds and that it's actually kind of better off if everybody gets a little space to agree. And, and in fact, we can have industries sort of support that. So in the, in the States, it was very, that's what, that's what lifestyle is. Lifestyle consumerism is the ability of people to dial into these different identities, including some you know, uh, uh, racial identities, including uh, emerging um, identities around gender, even though those had to be fought for, there was also kind of a, a world that was willing to sort of adopt to some degree uh, that openness. And that created a space where like people could have different opinions. You know, you, you don't need to go to church. You could do this. You could go that. You could get your meaning over here. You could get your meaning over there. And that was part of the way that the countercultural ener energies were sort of reabsorbed into mainstream society, the way that they were kind of, that was their gift to capitalism, was a kind of sense of cultural di uh, diversity, which could then be sold back as lifestyle and allow more individuals more freedom in how they determined their own particular world. You know, in a lot of ways, a laudatory process. But if you take it down the road into the sort of technological world where suddenly because of the way that media has exploded and that the mainstream has broken down, then you get uh, uh, this, this, these breaks, these fundamental shifts. And as someone who was always kind of tapped into this kind of thinking, and I, you know, I was, I was writing in the 90s, I was writing about media, I was writing about computers, the internet, subcultures, you know, uh, alternate worldviews, all that kind of stuff was already sort of my beat. And at that point, I thought what was going to happen, it was just going to be this sort of marvelous multiplicity, where it was really like all these different perspectives that were going to sort of ha each have their own take in this kind of crazy postmodern celebration. And while that's true to a degree, in the sense that there are all these subcultural worlds that exist on the internet and you can meet people across the globe who share your absolutely peculiar interest in, you know, whatever, some kind of 18th century glassware or some incredibly peculiar, you know, uh, uh, musical genre or whatever. 
that's yeah, that diversity is there. But what really happened was this kind of like dual split. You know, that was like, I wasn't ready for that, you know, like at least in America, where it's just like the difference between Fox News and the Democratic news, let's call it that, because I don't want to call it the left because it's not really left. But it's uh, uh, that it very much is a certain kind of blue state um, mainstream media position, MSNBC, New York Times, da, da, da. And I, you know, more of that world. So I respect that world. But I can also see the way it looks from from a conservative perspective as another kind of con, another sort of. So now we're in this split which, you know, if you look close, is fractured in multiple directions. The left has always been fractured. There's all these da-da-da-da. But now we're like swimming in that. And yet, this is an interesting question to bring it back to the moment. And yet, the way that there has been agreement to a degree, a larger degree than I would have expected about the pandemic is very interesting. You know, it, it, it's, it, it's not just, at the moment, it's not just, media politics as usual. It's still going on in the States. You still have that. Uh, maybe it's because, you know, I'm more pro-science. So I was happy to see that the, because the, the, the blue media, the democratic media, the New York times media, that's more aligned with science. Uh, climate change is a great example. Uh, this is clearly a science moment. This is a moment where science is cool uh, uh, that, that it's pushed back some of that paranoid nativism, pushed it down when you can sense it, but, you know, we'll see how that bounces back, how things kind of play out. So in a moment, it's like a quiet triumph, not even that quiet, of the forces of public health, the idea that experts actually know what they're talking about, even though they don't know that much, because we don't know that much about this thing still, really. Um, we just don't have the infrastructure, or whatever. In other ways, we've completely failed in the in the states. But in the way in which people have kind of reorganized their model of information and state action and whatever, it's a very interesting, in a way, pushback against this completely fractured view of either the national uh, mind frame in the United States or really on the on the global level. I mean, it really is an extraordinary moment of global solidarity that we haven't seen in in my lifetime. Um, and so it's it's very interesting the way that that's rewriting some of the what seems like the natural dynamics of these things, um, but who knows how it's going to play out. Yeah. I wanted to ask as well, you talk about after the JFK assassination, the use of a term like conspiracy theory to keep some legitimate, some illegitimate questions to, to kind of keep the mainstream narrative clean but as we kind of look at things now it's almost the inverse of that with conspiracy theorists like Steve Bannon advising the president and it seems like the reverse tactic is employed recently that you know you don't bother to keep the thing clean you keep it all dirty so you can't really differentiate is that an accurate way to depict a kind of shift that happens or or not yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I th the way that I'm interpreting your question is to say that the uh, the mask is off and the gloves are off. If if politics is always on one level a power struggle, at various points in history, it's a power struggle in the name of values that at least appear to be of a higher order than pure political power, than just pure power. And whether or not we see that as a noble failure, you know, we can look back at the history of liberalism and say, okay, 
yeah, colonialism, yeah, global elites, yeah. But we were really trying, you know, to not just have a medieval feudal order. I mean, it was a good attempt. It it just didn't work, you know. That's sort of the sort of nobler view. I mean, except for the people who still like really, you know, invest in those in those values in those in those terms. Or you just go look. It was always just one group playing off against another group, and everybody's just fibbing all the time. And now we can't. We it's hard to hold on to the value. Uh, and so it just becomes more naked power because it's so polarized, at least in the States. So because they think, and everybody's playing the victim. So because, you know, Steve Bannon thinks he's victimized by the global liberal elite, uh, thinks Christians are victimized by, then you can play all the dirty tricks you want because you've justified it. And, and yet the reverse is also true because, you know, the, the right has their own thing we can play, you know, so everybody, so like the, like journalism has, has declined and degenerated into, into partisanship so that every story is already a spin. So everything's spinning already and everybody knows it's already a spin. And so everybody gets cynical about the thing. So we've lost that, that consensus or that sort of value uh, uh, that, that, that was that integrating value. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't see how that dynamic shifts in the American context. Uh, I just, I don't, I don't accept the fact that I think over time, like in the sense of generations over generations, that particular, the, the really deep, hostile, nativist, racist, right-wing thing is just going to be eaten away at generationally as more and more of us are urban mixed grow up with group you know it's just it just over time that those generations i think will eat away at it but i don't see it changing in any political way i don't see any rapprochement it just i i think it's unrealistic uh to imagine it so you know in a partisan fight that's a weird way that like COVID is, is, you know, I could almost see why I'm sure there's some people I I've, I've actually kind of avoided going very far into the conspiracies around it because they're just so toxic and I just, I just don't really want to hear it. And it's so obviously it's, it's so clear. It's real. I don't, you know, there are people who think it's not real and this is the blah, 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 whatever, you know, people think everything, but it's, it's a very interesting time because I think a lot of people who might in some case, some ways be sort of swayed by those ideas because you can see the way that it allows certain political forces to come forward and other, for, and other forces uh, to be pushed back. Uh, nonetheless, um, it just seems real to me. And, it, and I think a lot of people are, 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 are that call towards reality is, is, a, is a beneficial yeah. thing at this point. In Judith Butler's last book, that actually came out before all this kind of happened. She talked about Lacan and the way he talks about the fantasy of adulthood is kind of constantly under attack by your own awareness of your kind of uh, interdependence with other people. As I was reading it, I was thinking maybe in an, if you're being optimistic, one thing that might come from everything that's happening is is a kind of shattering of this illusion that you're not in, interdependent sort of socially, culturally, medically with other people yeah i think that's really it's really important i mean it was a, i mean a number of things to say about that one 
we might as well be optimistic right now. I mean, what else do we got? There, the, that where we were going was like, it, it didn't seem like there was anywhere to, there was no room to maneuver. It was like all the, the inertia and the dynamics of the thing were just, just going on. And it was like, how do, you, how do you put a wedge into this thing? And even though all, those, all of those dynamics are still there to some degree, I mean, they've taken a hit, the, you know, the global market's taken a hit. We're going to see all sorts of economic calamity and, and social tensions based on the economic calamity. But, you know, AI marches on. The, 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 the capitalist extraction industries are just refining their capacity. The surveillance state as mediated by all the tools that we're now using even more that's all, you know, so we're still in this kind of frightening dystopian dynamic. Uh, and yet there's a shift. There's a, a, a shift that is in, uh, impacting us extremely personally, existentially, emotionally, and cognitively in terms of how we see the world, how we see ourselves, how we see the economy, how we see contact, how we see bodies, all these things that you're talking about. And they all push towards that non, you know, post-individualist kind of framework, which is why it's, it's, you know, in, in some sense, a lot of what I'm talking about on a, on a kind of visionary level with psychedelics and with these strange experiences in these strange worlds is kind of like what happens when the individual melts down, when you realize that the world is not as, as, co as crystallized and coherent around your own particular needs as you might have thought, or your own drives, your own survival drive, let's say. It's still there, but it's, it's sort of shattered. So all of these guys, they all were kind of wrestling in some visionary science fictional way with, with forms of collectivity, with forms of networks, of, of interaction, of, of uh, um, a post-individualist way of being human in terms of also collective celebration, etc. And so that reformulation does seem to be very available right now, a kind of, you know, the, the, the fact that by strangely isolating ourselves physically, we are actually affirming these larger networks, both the networks of friendship and communication that we rely on and that we're consuming and participating in more and more, but also just the fact that I'm also just a statistical animal in a herd of animals that is being, you know, undergoing this, uh, you know, statistical biological process. Uh, and that, that I am part of that process. So I, I mean, all the people who are like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm wearing my mask because I'm going to stay safe because I don't want to breathe in a virus. And then you have to realize, no, I'm actually wearing a mask because I might be an asymptomatic carrier getting some old ladies sick to, to death. And you're like, and that's a really weird. And like everybody did that or like a lot of people did that. You first think you're doing it for you. And then you're like, no, I'm doing it for the, the whole process to, to, to change the rate, not to avoid. And I might have it. Like that weird, it's like a science fiction, like, oh my God, I'm actually an android. It's like, oh my God, I'm actually a carrier. I might be, if I go see my 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 grandmother, I might be, uh, you know, killing her off. Oh wait, who am I? Oh, I'm also a vector of non-human 
and things that are doing their own thing, just the way I have like this huge colony of 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 biology biological entities in my gut that actually completely informs my mood, my attitude, my ability to get through the day. And I'm you know I'm already a symbiont. So anything that encourages that I'm already a symbiont kind of attitude, I think is helpful. Uh, at, you know, at this point, it's part of what gets us beyond that individualism. But it doesn't save it because. You know, some of the, you know, if you if you look at totalitarianism, it's totalitarian states are able to work with that, that I'm, I'm a symbiont kind of model very well. And so it's no accident that even as from an American perspective, the strong role of the state and the strong role of science and the strong role of, of public health and collective thinking and the clear failures of American capitalism vis-a-vis the the coronavirus, that's all good news for me politically, or mostly good news for me politically, albeit there's a lot of, uh, you know, economic difficulty. But for totalitarian governments, that's a different story. You know, for India, for Hungary, for, oh boy, oh man, this is just catnip. So, you know, even that collective motion is not just inherently good. Everything is contextual and everything is is moving everything's turbulent just the way you're talking about that is the kind of failures of things maybe maybe think about the way you were talking about rationality and the tensions in the counterculture between those that thought rationality was an effective vehicle for political change and those that kind of abandoned it uh the kind of head heads fist dichotomy but maybe that's not a question maybe that's just something that came to mind as you were speaking well, you, you know, another way of saying it is like is is just uh, how do we think about rationality in this expanded view that I'm trying to sort of you know operate within, and it's a it's a really good question because you know uh, one of the things that the counterculture opened up is the value of the non-rational, the post-rational. Uh, you know whether it's by celebrating Dionysian behavior or ec- ecstasy uh, or intuition or mysticism. There's this strong kind of critique of the system, and the system is running on rationality. It's running on efficiency. It's running on productivity. It's running on science, on technology, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the kind of that's the sort of first level of that dynamic in terms of understanding the counterculture but the more you actually look at it the more that it's it's all there's a there's a whole uh a lot of uh uh, hybrids of rationality and the irrational everywhere you look and that the counterculture actually featured a lot of engineers a lot of makers of doers of people who were interested in systems how did systems work how does media work? How, what happens when we reconfigure a system? We create a commune. We create a different kind of collective that has in it all of these tools and technologies. You know, and on one level, that gets to the whole earth catalog and ultimately to the sort of hippie influence on Silicon Valley. But it's not just that. It's also inside you know, the left. It's inside new forms of collectivity. So there's actually a lot of can-do that's going on inside of these experiments and indeed one of the things that i that i i isolate with all of the guys that i'm writing about is this very weird but interesting and productive balance of 
of reason, I would say probably more than rationality, of reason and an appreciation for uh, the surreal, the sublime, the bizarre, the fantastic, the mystical, and how those are, you know, kind of both parts of our, of our operating, uh, you know, of our, of our kind of code uh, is, is that, is precisely that kind of balance. Yeah, perfect. You've saved my half-formed inquiry there really well. <laughs> um, I was thinking... <laughs> it was kind of a half-formed answer, well, so... <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Could we finish off? I-, I wanted to ask you about your next book with MIT Press. I've, I've heard Matt, men- uh, Matt, for those listening who don't know, is one of the acquisitions editors at MIT. I've heard him mention uh, your new book, and I was wondering if you could give us a insight as to what it's going to be about. Yeah, it's, I continue to dive into the psychedelic history. I'm, I'm very interested in the history of LSD, uh, and particularly now uh, when there's a, this great psychedelic renaissance, but most of the compounds that people are talking about these days, psilocybin, ayahuasca, uh, MDMA, uh, even DMT, um, they're not, they don't talk that much about acid. Acid's kind of like the, the, you know, the grand old dom in terms of Western psychedelia, uh, but in many ways that to me is the, the most interesting because the most modern, the most of our, of the West. And so what, what I get, what I'm going to be doing in this is, is, is tracing the, the, uh, a important history of LSD, which is the, um, uh, uh, the archive of, uh, which is going into the archive of LSD blotter, um, blotter became by the mid seventies, uh, the, probably the primary medium for distributing LSD earlier it had been in gelatins or capsules or uh, um, sugar cubes. Um, and so blotter became this sort of uh, a medium of, of distribution that also became an art form. So it's this very strange moment where you have this emergence of a kind of folk art, a kind of criminal psychedelic folk art that is at once a brand, a magical spell, uh, a, a canvas, and you know an art object that you eat. Uh, and so, it, and the the range of images, as you might imagine, is really quite extraordinary. Um, and so, I'm be working with a fellow named Mark McLeod, uh, who has the world's largest collection of LSD blotter. Uh, and it's also worth saying that in its later, in the last couple of decades, blotter has emerged as a sort of non-drug art object of, for collectors, where people will create blotter, uh, you know, images on blotter paper. They never enter the the drug market. They are so, they are signed by people or they're sold and collected. So there's there's now a, ver- a very thriving collector market as well, which we'll be talking about. But I'm mostly interested in tracing the the earlier history of the of the the drug blotter, uh, the dipped blotter, and and just you know un- unpacking this extraordinary visual um, archive of uh, underground mind expansion. Mm. And and when uh, can we expect that to be on the way? That's a good question. <laughs> Everything's a little oh the whole whole question of time in the future is a little strange is, right yeah. now, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll hope, hopefully I'll be wrapping it up, uh, you know, early next year. Be okay, nice. great. Great. Yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoyed high weirdness. So I'm really looking forward to your next book. Great. Cool. Cheers. Cheers, Eric. 
Speak soon. Oh, well, thanks a lot. Sounds good to me. Cool. Bye-bye.